Because we're members of many multilateral organizations, we bring a diverse perspective to the table. We are credible conveners, as while we have strong convictions, we don't impose them on others. We don't play games in negotiations. We work to create coalitions and platforms. We approach challenges with humility and patience. We take the time to listen to others. And we are self-deprecating and are able to laugh at ourselves. We put humans at the center of a challenge. And one of my team mentioned the issue of representation. When you see a Canadian delegation at a meeting, it's often a mirror of our history of immigration. So perhaps it's also because we walk the talk. Welcome everyone to this new episode of The Next Page, our podcast here at Library and Archives designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. This episode is part of our ambassador series and today I have the honor and the pleasure to have in our studio Ambassador Leslie Norton, who's the permanent representative of Canada to the United Nations here in Geneva and also to the Conference on Disarmament. And that since 2019 in August, to be precise. Prior to this, of course, she held several senior roles in various areas in the Foreign Office, including humanitarian assistance and disaster reduction. Ambassador Norton, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us on our podcast. And before we dive into the subject of today's conversation, which is Canada in the UN and in the world, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit about how you came to diplomacy and uh, how you became the permanent representative of Canada to the UN? So first of all, let me thank you uh, for the invitation to join you here and uh, thank you to all your listeners as well. Uh, working for the Government of Canada is not a family tradition by any means. I'm somewhat an odd woman out uh, in that I'm the only one working for the government in my family. Uh, I think that I can track my interest in international issues back to my first year of university spent in France in a school with 45 different nationalities, almost like a, a mini UN. I returned to Canada to complete my university education, uh, spending one of those summers working for an NGO in Cameroon, West Africa, coming out the other end with a master's in international relations. Part of my master's degree included an internship in the Human Rights and Women's Equality Division at UNESCO headquarters in Paris. So the international noose starts to tighten. After my formal schooling, I was fortunate to work uh, for the, Minister of, the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs as a consultant uh, in the area of my specialization, which was human rights, including being part of the Canadian delegation to the World Conference on Human Rights in Vienna in 1993. You may recall that the 1990s were really the heady days of human rights, as well as for world conferences and summits. So I was now good and bit by the multilateral bug. During a period of cuts in our government, I, I did get a permanent position in the Canadian International Development Agency, better known as CEDA, where I spent a good portion of my career up until its amalgamation with the Foreign Affairs and International Trade Ministry in 2013. I had a number of assignments in the Africa, Asia, and multilateral branches, including a posting in Dhaka, Bangladesh, in development assistance. I then landed in the humanitarian team, first at headquarters, and over the next 15 years proceeded to do every position touching upon international humanitarian affairs, including as humanitarian counselor in Geneva at our mission here. My last job in the humanitarian remit was as DG for humanitarian assistance, which I did for six years, including through the amalgamation period. 
So like many other ambassadors uh, currently in Geneva, I'm what you call a repeat offender. Uh, throughout the period, uh, I was part of the Canadian response to probably every major natural disaster from Hurricane Mitch in the Americas to the earthquake in Nepal in 2015. Some of the more interesting opportunities that presented themselves during those years, everything was interesting, what included working on the Burundi peace talks, where as an addition to my position at headquarters, I commuted to Arusha, Tanzania, about eight times over an 18-month period, working as the roving secretariat for the Canadian vice chair of the Fourth Commission, Carolyn McCaskey, a Canadian diplomat who later went on to have quite an illustrious career at the UN. And seeing peace negotiations in action was very interesting, as was meeting Julius Nyerere and Nelson Mandela. I also was there for the birth of good humanitarian donorship and chaired it for its first two years. I chaired the negotiations for the new Food Assistance Convention and basically worked on all topical humanitarian policy issues, as well as sat on governing boards of some of our key UN development and humanitarian partners. So after having done all possible positions touching on humanitarian affairs, I then made a horizontal move uh, as DG and then ADM, or Assistant Deputy Minister, uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa branch, where I covered trade, political affairs, and development assistance engagement in these countries or with these countries. So when I first came to Geneva in 2001 to serve at the mission, I used to call myself an accidental diplomat. As I came out of the aid stream, I was a practicing bureaucrat. I had a niche expertise and never thought I'd be sitting behind the Canadian flag speaking on behalf of Canada. So not a typical diplomat. And now I find myself here as ambassador. I never aspired to be an ambassador, but I'm so honored to have been appointed. I'm deeply interested and committed to the issues that this particular position covers, including human rights, labor, cyber and digital, health, humanitarian, migration, and refugees, to disarmament, peace and security, and governance. So I've also been known to call myself an accidental ambassador on occasion. Well, thank you so much for this introduction. It's indeed an amazing career. I know myself a few things uh, about humanitarian assistance because in the UN before this job, two jobs ago, I was in humanitarian assistance. And I had the honor to be actually a direct report to Caroline McCaskey um, on a number of occasions in a number of operations. So there you go. Um, another, another very well-known Canadian character uh, who helped a lot the international community get out of uh, disaster situations at times as, as those that you mentioned were really, really grave. So let's move on a little bit to to your, your country, Canada. Um, Canada is fascinating. Uh, everybody loves Canada and Canadians. I don't know how you do that, but uh, that is a fact. And it's respected everywhere. Everywhere you go in the world, people respect and like Canadians and your country. And your country history has some unique features. Um, just to mention one, the fact that Canada is both a parliamentary democracy and a constitutional monarchy at the same time, and that is also interesting um, to, to know a little bit more about. So for those who haven't had the luck, and I insist this is really luck to visit your country yet, um, how would you present Canada, and what are the key moments of its history? Well, thanks for that question. So as Canadians, like for most countries, uh, we live with stereotypes. We get teased about apologizing about everything, we're known only for our wildlife and nature, clean lakes and rivers, moose, beavers, and polar bears. And apparently we all love maple syrup. And we have good ice hockey players. 
which all of that in fact is true, but we also have so much more. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak about my country. So here goes. The essential features of my country are the following. We're a vast, bilingual, multicultural, resource-rich federal parliamentary democracy on lands both treaty and unceded that border the Atlantic, Pacific, and Arctic Oceans. So these features can serve as a useful shorthand for the complexity that led to the creation of Canada as we know it today. But you asked about key moments, so let me present a few. The first European explorer, Jacques Cartier, arrived in 1534 to claim land for France. The story about how Canada got its name dates back to that period. The story goes that the name Canada likely comes from the Huron-Iroquois word Canata, meaning village or settlement. In 1535, two Aboriginal youths told Jacques Cartier about the route to Canata. They were actually referring to the village of Stadacona, the site of the present-day city of Quebec. For lack of another name, Cartier used the word Canada to describe not only the village, but the entire area controlled by its chief, Donacona. So at various times, the Vikings, French, and British colonized the country. The Americans invaded during the Revolution and during the War of 1812. In 1763, at the end of the Seven Years' War, the British defeated the French, an important moment. While the French lost the war, years later, the British would guarantee French language rights, as well as the civil code and religious freedom for the predominantly Catholic French Canadians, which is another important moment. Confederation under the British North America Act in 1867 is the next big moment. The country became, quote, one dominion under the name Canada, relying on Britain for defense and oversight of our foreign policy until 1931 with the Statute of Westminster, which was Canada's all but final achievement of independence from Britain. Another important moment. Today we're a confederation of 10 provinces and three territories, with the creation of the territory of Nunavut in 1999, an Inuit self-governed territory in our north, which was another important moment in our history. So if you have a map of Canada that dates from before 1999, I suggest you throw it out as it's no longer accurate. So historians argue that Canada came of age during World War I, winning the Battle of Vimy Ridge in France in 1917. It was a pivotal moment for Canadian nationalism, and during the final two years of the war, the Canadians never lost a battle. There's a memorial paying tribute to the Canadians in Vimy, and during World War II, Canada made its own decision to join the war, showing its allies they were a force to be reckoned with, gaining respect across the globe. Like many Canadians, two of my family members fought and survived World War II. The person's case is another important moment, and it was a constitutional ruling that established the right of women to be appointed to the Senate. The case was initiated by the Famous Five, a group of prominent women activists. In 1928, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that women were not persons, according to the British North America Act, making them ineligible for appointment to the Senate. However, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council reversed the court's decision on October 18, 1929. The person's case enabled women to work for change in both the House of Commons and the Senate. It also meant that women could no longer be denied rights based on a narrow interpretation of the law. By 1927, most Canadian women were able to vote in federal elections and in provincial elections, except in Quebec, and that came in 1940. So as the second largest country in the world with the longest coastline covering five and a half time zones, 
We're a vast country that is distinguished by its regions. In fact, you could fit Germany into Alberta. Three quarters of us live in cities, and most live within 250 kilometers from the U.S. border. We're over 38 million people. We're a constitutional democracy since we repatriated our constitution from Britain in 1982, another important moment. And it's our constitution where we divide responsibility between the federal government and provinces. And that same year, we adopted the Charter of Rights and Freedom, which granted greater political and civil rights to all Canadians and paved the way for the legalization of same-sex marriage in 2005. So I'm really skimming over the history here, but now it's time to talk about the people. So Canada is built on the ancestral lands of the First Nations, Inuit and Métis. Colonial practices and policies such as the Indian Act, reserves, land grabs, and the residential school system sought to control and assimilate Indigenous peoples. These practices and policies have had historic and ongoing impacts on generations of Indigenous people. The recent findings of the unmarked graves at former residential schools are heartbreaking. The final reports of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women speak to ongoing work of reconciliation. On September 30th, Canada now commemorates the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. We're really trying to get it right, but we still have a lot of work to do. Pivoting now to Canada's long history of immigration, we tend to be pretty good at integrating newcomers, recognizing here that there can be challenges, my great-grandmother left Northern Ireland as a 20-year-old in 1910 and sailed across the Atlantic alone, leaving her family behind. I went on an odyssey this past summer, actually, to track down her past in Belfast. In 2021, in our most recent census, 23% of the population were or had ever been a landed immigrant or permanent resident in Canada. This is the largest proportion since Confederation. Remember, that was 1867. And it's the highest among the G7. If these trends continue, based on Statistics Canada's recent population projections, immigra- immigrants could represent anywhere from 29 to 34% of the population of Canada by 2041. Already half of the population of Toronto was born outside of Canada, and that number stands at 40% for Vancouver and Montreal. Last year, Canada welcomed over 405,000 newcomers, the most we've ever welcomed in a single year, and those numbers are expected to increase annually until 2025. So these immigration levels exceed 1% of our our population. Though immigration can be a divisive issue, even in Canada, the latest results in an annual poll by Enveronics Institute suggest Canadians support current immigration levels more than they have in nearly half a century. 69% of those surveyed were in support of current levels of immigration compared with just 35% in 1977. So 50 years ago, the former Prime Minister Trudeau, not the current one, implemented bilingualism, English and French, in the country. That's another important moment. Personally, I benefited from this, from this policy as I, I grew up in Ottawa, where it was first implemented, and then proceeded to spend eight years of my schooling splitting the days being taught in either French or English, depending on the subject. Not all Canadians have had that opportunity, and the latest figures I saw was that only 18% of Canadians claim proficiency in both official languages, with Quebecers being the most bilingual. I'd note here that successive Quebec governments have brought in laws to enhance the French language and culture. But let me touch upon Quebec and its attachment to Canada, which has been an important feature in Canadian history as well. 
Canada watchers might recall the referendum in 1995, which was the second referendum asking voters in the predominantly French-speaking province of Quebec whether it should proclaim sovereignty and become an independent country. The no option carried by a margin, receiving 50.58% of the votes cast. This referendum had followed a number of events, from violence in the 1960s to the 1970 October crisis, which led to the imposition of the War Measures Act, War Measures Act, to the election of the Parti Québécois in 1976 and the imposition of French-language-only laws in Quebec, to the 1990s where a federal party, the Bloc Québécois, was created and has elected members in Parliament today. The concept of distinct society distinguished Quebec from English Canada. It's a concept that originated during the Quiet Revolution and refers to the uniqueness of the province of Quebec within Canada. So over the years of my life, Quebec separatism has been prevalent, but we're now living a period of time where surveys suggest that Quebecers don't want to separate. So we've had some dark moments in our history, but the point is that we're trying to own our history, whether speaking about how certain peoples were treated in the past, including racism towards visible minorities. We're recognizing the mistakes, and we're working at addressing them. So at this point, I need to apologize to fellow Canadians for the many key moments that I didn't name or skated across or didn't tell with the finesse required. And there are many things that I haven't spoken about from our natural resources to our incredible culture, from art to literature to music to film and and television to our ability to innovate. Canadians invented insulin. They invented basketball and peanut butter, to name only a few. To close this really rapid scan, our geography, climate, and diversity have bred a resilient people, obliging us to practice tolerance, accommodation, and compromise for the most part. We're a country of over 200 ethnic groups making up our mosaic, rich in culture, where unity is debated and we're not immune to populism and polarization. And I'd say very humbly, we're still a nation under construction, and we have great senses of humor which change with our regions. Thank you so much for this rapid overview of so many key moments. I, I didn't know that you invented peanut butter. Now I'll think about that every time I open my jar in the morning. Canada is the second largest country in the world by total service. You, you mentioned that. Um, I wonder how many people do that who are not proficient in, in geography, like as, as, a, as, a general, as a general concept. And its weight in economic, social, and political terms, make it, for sure, a main player on the world stage. So this is where I would like to take our conversation next, to to the role that your country plays in our time. And I would like to start with um, with the American continent. What is Canada's place uh, in the continent, and also in the Pacific region, because you're also a Pacific uh, country. Um, what is that role today, and what can be said about the relations that you have in countries, with countries in these regions? So let me begin uh, with the important relationship with our immediate neighbor to the south. Uh, with our geography, economics, and culture, uh, pulls tend to be north-south more than east-west in our part of the world. And with that, obviously, comes very important trade, security, and people-to-people ties uh, with our uh, neighbors, the United States. 75% of our exports go go to the U.S., and they provide over half of our imports. We're their second-largest trading partner, and they are our first. 
Our trading relationship is based on important continental agreements, most recently the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement, CUSMA, uh, dating from July 2020. And we also have a, a series of agreements and formal alliances with the U.S. on the security side. So our bilateral relationship with the U.S. is key in our foreign policy. Also key to our foreign policy is our commitment to multilateralism. Because our economy depends on trade, we need rules to ensure peace and stability, and thus that's why a rules-based order is essential to so many small and medium-sized countries like Canada. And as a result, Canada is a member of many clubs, perhaps more multilateral organizations than any other country, but I, I, I have, didn't have time to count Beyond the UN and all of its agencies, there's the G7, G20, NATO, the Francophonie in the Commonwealth, the OAS. We're shareholders in the IFIs, the OSCE we're a member of, the WTO, APEC, as well as a member of a number of important trade agreements facing the Atlantic and the Pacific. Turning to the Americas, it's a region which is a priority for us. We have historic ties with many of the countries through either trade relations, mining and banking, people-to-people ties, and are due to our development assistance. So as you know, the Americas has its own long-standing multilateral forum, the OAS, which, like the United Nations, was founded after the Second World War. Our membership in the OAS is an integral part of our engagement with the region, For example, within the OAS, Canada promotes inclusion and respect for diversity as a proven path to peaceful, just, healthy, safe, resilient, and prosperous societies that respect human rights. Canada is also committed to its partnership with CARICOM through engagement at all levels. We have long-standing trading and banking interests in the Caribbean. We're committed to helping the Caribbean build resilience and achieve the SDGs. We have over 50 years of a development assistance partnership with Haiti and a healthy-sized Haitian diaspora in Canada. We're one of the top three donors to the region, and alongside the UK, we're the largest non-regional shareholder of the Caribbean Development Bank. Finally, it's important to mention that um, there are millions of Canadians who travel there for holidays annually in the winter months and in the years before COVID. I can confess to having been one of those Canadians in the past when based in Canada. As a Pacific nation, Canada recognizes that the Indo-Pacific region is critically important for the long-term prosperity, health, and security of Canadians. Canada's trans-Pacific trade and security interests and partnerships continue to be strengthened and to take on increasing importance. And this is highlighted through the 11-Nation Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the CPTPP, our membership in APEC, and our upcoming Indo-Pacific strategy. And this is concerning the region. So let me ask you also, what is the place of Canada in the world at large, not only um, the Americas and the Pacific? Which contribution would you highlight among those that Canada brings to the rest of of humanity? Uh, We know that many of the key pressing issues of our time, whether climate change, the COVID-19 crisis, food insecurity, the new dynamics brought by the digital world, the threat of the use of nuclear arsenals, are not bound by the borders of our countries or hemispheres and won't be solved without global cooperation. Canada's history has fostered uh, an enthusiasm on the part of Canadians for policy entrepreneurship and creative problem-solving that can help bridge divides. 
Our national motto, which is peace, order, and good government, and that dates back to that British North America Act of 1867 that I referred to earlier, goes some way to explain uh, what we consider an attachment to defend the rules, principles, institutions, and ideas that allowed a country like Canada to form, to come of age, and to thrive. To quote a former Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, these include a rejection of the idea that, that might makes right, a pragmatic approach to open trade for mutual benefit, and our deep commitment to multi-stakeholder partnerships and collaboration. And the strength of these ideas help explain Canada's conviction in the shared benefits that derive from an international system that's supported by shared rules and institutions for managing international affairs, in which we can live mostly peacefully as a community of nations based on justice and the rule of law, collective interests alongside sovereignty and the rights and freedoms of all persons. So against the backdrop of today's challenges, our foreign policy is focused on collaborative global engagement. And this is practiced within an overarching feminist framework, which I am very proud of, one that seeks to enable all people to enjoy the same human rights and have the same opportunities to succeed and to live in safety and security. So our approach to multilateralism is in part our, our contribution we're working hard to promote democracy, human rights, gender equality, and the rule of law, upholding the charter, as well as combating climate change and addressing the impact of the myriad of concurrent crises that we're all familiar with, all of which are at the core of Canada's foreign policy. So how do we do this? By working closely with diverse partners at the key tables where we have a voice, whether at the UN, via the General Assembly, the Human Rights Council, and other bodies, as well as at the other multilateral organizations uh, that we're members of, including the G7, G20, OSCE, Francophonie Commonwealth, APEC, to name just a few. We work hard to take approaches that are both pragmatic and principled, which I believe is appreciated, and it does pay off in our international relationships. Some recent examples include support of a revitalized rules-based system by creating the Ottawa Group for WTO reform, chairing the Freedom Online Coalition, co-chairing the Media Freedom Coalition, leading a global initiative against arbitrary detention, and championing the Ocean Plastics Charter. And some examples where we've stepped up with our partners to directly tackle the most challenging situations include, for instance, our close coordination with our NATO allies and international partners in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Canada's commitment of over $2.6 billion to the global pandemic response, whether for the act accelerator, including COVAX, or in the, the humanitarian and development assistance remit since February 2020, and Canada's international climate finance commitment, which it doubled to $5.3 billion over five years for the period 2021 to 2026, and this in support of developing countries' transition to low-carbon, climate-resilient, nature-positive, and inclusive sustainable development. So I also just want to mention that, that Canada is also an important humanitarian donor, working within the system to help provide assistance and protection for the record number of displaced people in the world and to help tackle and find solutions to their plight. So I wanted to share with you a, a very made-in-Canada approach. Some may know that Canada has a long tradition of refugee resettlement and is the first country in the world to have a refugee sponsorship program where private citizens and the community are directly involved in the resettlement of refugees from abroad. 
Canada has welcomed more than 300,000 refugees from its private sponsorship of refugees program since it was introduced in 1979. And the program has become a model for other countries around the world that they're now copying. There's some incredible human stories that have come to light recently. For instance, in the mid-1970s, Canada admitted thousands of Vietnamese refugees who then went on to become private sponsors for the Syrian refugees that were recently admitted to Canada. I'd say it's coming full circle. That's a nice example. And it links actually to something that I've been wanting to ask you since the beginning of this conversation. And it is, it's the fact that Canadians enjoy excellent reputation all over the world. I said it, I said it earlier on. But why do you think virtually everyone on earth likes you? So this is not an easy question to answer. Um, no doubt this has to do with perhaps some perceptions and some reality. So I'm going to respond by asking an, a number of questions. Is it the deep people-to-people ties that I referred to in the first part of this conversation due to our continued history of immigration and welcoming of newcomers? Is it because we're trying to own the darker parts of our history? Or is it because we're an experiment in nation-building and in pluralism in real time? Is it because we try to be helpful fixers and bridge-builders in trying to address today's challenges? Is it because we have a feminist government where commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion are spoken about with conviction by our most senior leadership? And this at a time of backlash against these principles and when we need to hear this globally now more than ever? So perhaps it's all of these reasons and none of them. In wrestling with an answer to this question, I actually asked my team, which might be very Canadian, I asked them what they thought because they're the experts and they're the multilateralist practitioners uh, working in the so-called trenches day in, day out. Some of the points they offered included the following. So, because we're members of many multilateral organizations, we bring a diverse perspective to the table. We are credible conveners, as while we have strong convictions, we don't impose them on others. We don't play games in negotiations. We work to create coalitions and platforms. We approach challenges with humility and patience. We take the time to listen to others. And we are self-deprecating and are able to laugh at ourselves. We put humans at the center of a challenge. And one of my team mentioned the issue of representation. When you see a Canadian delegation at a meeting, it's often a mirror of our history of immigration. So perhaps it's also because we walk the talk. Well, it must be it must be all of those reasons, as as you said before. Um, let me take the conversation to the core of this ambassador series. They all have this central question about the the journey of 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 the member state um, in the UN um, as as an organization, but also as a, as a as a pact among nations for for peace, uh, security, well being, and human rights. So Canada is among those countries that created the United Nations back in 1945, was part before then of the League of Nations and has today membership in many international and regional organizations. You, you, you mentioned a number uh, of those already, so I won't go there. But it looks as if, to me, 
multilateralism is an international cooperation is almost um, a tradition and a national commitment for Canada. And I think I think uh, several of your comments point in that direction. So the question is very simple. What assessment can we make today of Canada's journey in the UN, in the UN as an organization and as ideal? So one could say that Canada has matured as a nation uh, over the same years that the UN and multilateralism have matured and evolved. Over that time, uh, we've seen institutions take shape, treaties come into force, global norms and standards set, and Canada has been there on the journey. Canada is and has been a proud host state for several UN entities. For example, since its, its inception in 1947, the International Civil Aviation Organization, has been headquartered in Montreal. During World War II, we hosted the ILO headquarters, also in Montreal. And the first ever FAO conference was convened in Quebec City and chaired by Lester B. Pearson, the father of modern peacekeeping, who was a Canadian diplomat and later prime minister. And soon we'll welcome the world to Montreal in December 2022 for COP15 which will focus on protecting nature and halting biodiversity loss around the world. Montreal has always hosted the Secretariat of the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity. Given that China couldn't provide the location for the conference due to the pandemic, Canada has stepped up to fulfill this role. To note that the COP15 presidency will remain under China, as recognized by all members of the UN Convention. We've also had many important Canadians who've influenced the shaping of multilateralism as we know it today, working to shape it actually from the inside. And, you know, names like John Humphreys and Maurice Strong and Louise Arbour and Louise Frechette. And as we mentioned, Carolyn McCaskey, and there's also Romeo Dallaire, but there's so many more. And I I did not want to mention any uh, because I didn't want to miss others. The gains directly attributable to multilateralism over the past 70-plus years are undeniably impressive. But we do recognize that the system is not, of course, perfect. The benefits of multilateralism are not evenly distributed, and the rules are not equally applied. It's clear that multilateralism needs to evolve as new challenges emerge and old problems persist. And this isn't new to us. However slow, multilateralism is never static, it changes as, as we will it to. Its gains are collective, as are its setbacks. That's the thing about multilateralism. We're all in it together. As we've been since 1945, Canadians are prepared to do our part. Canadians value community. We're open to the world. We see strength and diversity. The notion that we're stronger because of our differences, not in spite of them, is the very foundation upon which Canada was built and is also central to how we approach our work in the UN. Today's crises and the way that we choose to respond to them are tested, or well, they're testing our shared commitment to the United Nations and to multilateralism. We need to continue to work together to build these coordinated multilateral responses to the, ov- to the overlapping crises that we're facing And just to say that Canada does remain committed to the United Nations and to stand firm in the defense of our democratic values and principles. And what's your view as ambassador here in Geneva of of the the global challenges um, and, and the implementation of the SDGs, for example, halfway into into Agenda 2030? So my short answer is that the challenges are immense. 
Um, as the UN section has said, we're in rough seas and a winter of global discontent, discontent is on the horizon. He also emphasized that we have a duty to act, and Canada agrees with him. From Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine and the reverberations around the world, including food insecurity and an energy crisis, to the impacts of the COVID pandemic, to climate change, to severe conflicts and hardships that now affect billions of people, we're really living in challenging times. And as I mentioned, these crises and the way we choose to respond to them are testing our shared commitment to the United Nations. Part of our approach is to work with, our part, with all partners to ensure that the UN remains effective, efficient, relevant, and accountable so it can deliver results. And at times we ask UN organizations and agencies really tough questions while also taking a deep interest in governance issues. This is because we care about the health of the system. We believe that we need a strong multilateral system and that we need to work together to address the global challenges as they stand. Now, turning to the SDGs, as you may recall, on April 6, it was announced that Prime Minister Trudeau would co-chair the Secretary General's SDG Advocates Group with the Prime Minister of Barbados for the next two years. For those who may not know, the SDG Advocates are 17 inspiring, influential people working to raise global awareness of the SDGs and the need for accelerated action. We're honoured that the Prime Minister has been chosen for this role. It's an exciting opportunity for Canada to reinforce its leadership on the 2030 Agenda, particularly its efforts to advance gender equality and the empowerment of all women and girls, to combat climate change and protect the planet, enable access to quality education for all, and foster diverse and inclusive partnerships for sustainable development. We're also excited to work with partners towards recovery from the pandemic and to get the world onto a more sustainable, peaceful, and prosperous pathway. Since 2016, Canada has co-chaired the Group of Friends of SDG Financing with Jamaica. So it's a natural next step that in response to the, the COVID-19 pandemic, Canada worked with, with the UN Secretary General and Jamaica to launch the Financing for Development in the Era of COVID-19 and Beyond initiative, which is a large-scale, coordinated, multilateral response focused on recovery solutions, and it's aligned with the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Four leaders' meetings and a meeting of finance ministers help, helped actually to advance a menu of over 250 policy options to guide response and recovery efforts. And maybe in conclusion, just to say on the home front, our 2030 Agenda national strategy called Moving Forward Together is committed to whole-of-society engagement in the SDGs recognizing that everyone has a role in realizing sustainable development. When you look at um, this community of states and nations uh, together um, under the umbrella of the UN, in your view, how should a country make itself useful to this community of the UN, the United Nations, more than the organization itself, the United Nations, um, in order to uphold multilateralism, maintain collective security in the future? You ask a, a really good question, and that's really the crux of the issue facing us, and there really is no magic bullet. But first of all, I think we need to build trust so that we're willing to work together to build these coordinated multilateral responses to the, the plethora of crises that we face today. So building trust is essential, and this can only happen through dialogue. We also need to continue to build healthy UN institutions and agencies. We need to exert appropriate stewardship, not for control, not to harm their independence, but because we care about the system and its good function, and we need to ensure that they have adequate funding. 
We need to protect the process, and we need to get processes right. The journey through a process sometimes brings as much in value in building multilateralism as the end product, sometimes maybe more. And processes need to be inclusive. So we need to commit to working with partners and to ensuring that the voices of those most affected are heard. We need to work to find innovative solutions to challenges, and we need to continue to develop new tools to help tackle today's challenges. As a system, we need to be able to learn from our mistakes, and we need to hold up the charter and make sure that those who violate it are held accountable. The same, really, really, maybe in conclusion, is the same hard-won lessons uh, we've learned and continue learning as a diverse nation apply to our approach to multilateralism, the importance of listening to all voices, looking for common ground, not being afraid to lead, but also knowing that we have much to learn. We're keeping faith in the system, even as it's challenged, because the sum of what can be achieved collaboratively is greater than all of its parts. As we wrap up this episode, Ambassador Norton, if there was one or two things you want our audience to remember what would that be? Well, I'm actually going to put out three points, if I can. Um, so I just wanted to start off by saying we hear a lot of messaging that the UN is broken and not functioning as it should or as it's meant to. And we know that the, the system is not perfect. The reality is, is if the UN didn't exist, we would have to create it. Although what we would create today would look quite different from what was created post-World War II if we could agree and get to consensus. But against this backdrop, there are many parts of the UN that that have been functioning effectively that we don't hear about. For instance, the UN and its partners reached over 107 107 million people with some form of assistance in 2021. This is not nothing. And there are so many good examples from the operational funds and programs and specialized agencies. So not only are UN agencies providing services directly to people who need them, but they're also critical partners to Canada and other member states in delivering some of our own top priorities. For an example, IOM and UNHCR have been essential to Canada's efforts to resettle tens of thousands of refugees from Syria and more recently from Afghanistan. Second, we're living a moment of change in Geneva, with three new leaders heading up the ITU, the first ever woman in its history, the ILO, the first ever African in its history, and there's a new High Commissioner for Human Rights. Perhaps this change in leadership will help propel us forward in the direction we need to move. And finally, and most importantly, it's always good to be reminded that the UN is about people. So let me use this remaining time to express my heartfelt gratitude on behalf of Canada and all Canadians to United Nations personnel, past and present, in the Secretariat, in the funds and programs, and specialized agencies, in headquarters, with a plural, and in the field. I just want to say thank you. We're in your debt. Well, Ambassador Leslie Norton, Permanent Representative of Canada to the United Nations in Geneva, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. <laughs>